Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. That's ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let's pray. Lead forth, O Lord, thy people by the waters of comfort, which thou hast formed by the baptismal streams, that they, inspired by the teaching of thy law, may have their desire set on that place where thou promisest thyself to be their eternal reward. Wherefore we say glory be to the Father, who anoints our head with oil. Glory be to the Son, the shepherd of his people. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, who provides for us that inebriating chalice which is so excellent, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. Well, we continue our way through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four, which you can find printed in your bulletin. Uh, And before we read this Q&A together, I want to flag one reminder for you, and that is that all of these divine uh, attributes, these divine names in this catechism, um, are equally true and fully possessed by the three divine persons. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all together and equally spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and so forth. And uh, to deny that is to be heretical, which you don't want to be. So as we continue through these divine names, remember that these are all equally true of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because all three persons are God. So uh, let's read this together. I'll just read the question, and then together uh, we'll read the answer, and then we'll look at the divine name, Wisdom. So Westminster Shorter Catechism question four asks, what is God? Answer, God is a spirit. So here we consider the meaning of the sentence, God is wisdom. What is God? God is wisdom. What does it mean to say that God is wisdom? Whenever we say anything about God, we must start with what is true in our creaturely reality. We need to define what wisdom is first with us among creatures before we predicate it, stick it in God. You can think of doing theology as like building a rocket ship. 
that you are going to launch into the sun. In this analogy, the sun is God. You need the light of the sun, revelation, to see what you are doing. But you can't take bits and pieces of the sun to build your rocket ship. You can only use materials you already have down here to send it up there. And then once you have assembled your rocket ship, whatever you want to say about God, and you launch it, you say, God is wisdom, and it shoots off into space, there are things that helped launch it that won't make it all the way and are going to fall back to the earth. These are what we would call imperfections or potency. So it is when we say that God is wisdom. So what is wisdom? Think about that. What is wisdom? How would you define it? Well, let's start with a negation. Wisdom is immaterial. Wisdom is non-physical. You cannot touch or hold wisdom in your hands. It is not an object that you can look at. Wisdom is what we call spiritual. It is intellectual. It exists immaterially in the heart and mind of man. As Proverbs says, wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Positively then, wisdom is knowledge. It is the knowledge of causes and effects, of relations and proportions of genus and species. Wisdom is the ability to make right distinctions, to cut reality at the joints, and to put things in their proper order. Wisdom knows the beginning and essences of things, along with their final end. Wisdom in Scripture is set forth as an architect. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, As a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. In Proverbs 8, wisdom is personified as a master craftsman that the Lord uses to create the world. Wisdom, in its perfection, is comprehensive knowledge. And when we say that God is wisdom... We are saying that God understands and comprehends all things, and he does so in a single act, an act that is without time and without reasoning and without any of those logical steps that you and I go through as creatures. God's wisdom is his knowledge of himself, and by knowing his own essence, he knows all things perfectly. If that seems hard to grasp, It's because, as the Apostle Paul says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. How much more, then, is God's wisdom beyond us? To contemplate these things should remind us of our need to confess our sins. So as you are able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Our sermon text this morning comes from the gospel according to Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 34. These are the words of God. And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. 
And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know, I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him, and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and anon they tell him of her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And immediately the fever left her, and she ministered unto them. And at evening, when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased, and them that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases, and cast out many devils, and suffered not the devils to speak, because they knew him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth. And we ask that as we behold his doctrine and his power in your word, that you would give us understanding and true love for you. We ask for your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. Well, we are working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and last week we saw that Jesus has just begun his public ministry. As a little boy, we know from the Gospel of Luke that Jesus was learned in the things of God. He knew the Holy Scriptures as a child. As a young man, through his 20s we presume, he worked with his hands as a carpenter. And now, at age 30, Jesus is baptized and ordained to ministry. Uh, if you know uh, the priesthood, 30 is the age at which a priest began service in the tabernacle. 30 is the age at which uh, David began to reign as king. And 30 is the age at which Ezekiel, uh, the original son of man, was called to prophesy. And so uh, Jesus, who of course is the true son of man, we heard that in the Daniel, uh, Daniel 7 reading, uh, Jesus is this new priest, king, and prophet. He enters the third decade of his life and he begins to do battle, <clears throat> excuse me, he begins to do battle against the forces of darkness. This spiritual warfare began, we saw, in the wilderness, where he was tempted by Satan and was amongst the wild beasts. And then, having overcome that trial, he enters the lake towns of Galilee. And there he announces, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. We also saw last week that Jesus calls to himself the first four disciples, two sets of brothers, Simon and Andrew, James and John, all of them fishermen. And these four fishermen are going to become uh, the equivalent of David's mighty men. Uh, Jesus is amassing an army of disciples. He has reconstituted God's heavenly hosts, and he is preparing to retake the promised land. But as we will see in the chapters ahead, 
This conquest is going to come in a surprising way. The kingdom will not arrive with horse and chariot and the weapons of this world, but rather the kingdom comes by the proclamation of the word, the preaching of the gospel by the sharp and two-edged sword of the spirit. So that is uh, the context for our passage this morning. And if you look at our text, we see that um, it kind of neatly divides into two. There are two different houses here that Jesus visits. So one is a public house and then a a private house. These are the first uh, two places in Mark's gospel that Jesus uh, invades. So in verses 21 to 28, we see Jesus enter a house of worship, a synagogue. And then in verses uh, 29 to 34, Jesus enters the house of one of his new disciples, Simon Peter's house. And in both of these instances, Jesus is going to enter a house and cleanse it. He is going to bring life and healing where there is death and darkness. That is what the conquest of the gospel looks like. Um, As we saw last week, Jesus is the continuation of that stream that flowed out of Ezekiel's temple. He is the very presence and holiness of God who brings newness of life wherever he goes. And so with that, uh, let us turn to our text and see uh, Jesus the exorcist at work. Starting in verse 21, it says, And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. Uh, Capernaum is, uh, literally just means village of Nahum, uh, Nahum um, and that's a little lake town on the northwest coast of Galilee. So if uh, you kind of have the image of uh, Jesus' public ministry in your mind, there's the Sea of Galilee, this kind of little lake up top. And then you have this river that runs down into the Dead Sea. And then you have Jerusalem kind of just to the side. And then you have the Mediterranean. This is all reverse for you guys. Sorry, I'm doing it in my head. Uh, you can kind of, if you want to take your hand like this, everyone do, you know, just take your hand like this. And you think all this area under your hand is the Mediterranean. And then this is, uh, you know, is Israel, the region of Israel. You got Sea of Galilee uh, at like your thumb knuckle. And then your middle knuckle could be the Dead Sea, okay? So if you, if you ever need to remember, you just do this, people will think you're totally normal, right? <laughs> okay. So, but, but it's good to know because we're told a lot of detail about where Jesus goes. And he starts in the north, and then he's going south is where Jerusalem is. And in Scripture, Jesus, you always go up to Jerusalem, uh, but up is not north. Up is south from, from Jesus' perspective. He's north in uh, Galilee, and eventually he'll make his way Uh, south to Jerusalem. Okay, so that's geographically where we are. We are told here also that uh, it is the Sabbath day, the day of worship, and Jesus enters the synagogue to teach. Um, You can really think of this as roughly equivalent to us going to church on Sunday. Uh, The Jews from ancient times would gather in these synagogues, and there would be readings from the law and the prophets. There would be a time of preaching and explanation of the scriptures, and also a time of prayer and probably psalm singing. So uh, if that sounds like our worship service, yeah, it it kind of is. So it's, it's not that different from what we do today. 
So Jesus has already, as we saw, been preaching outside in the open air along the coast of Galilee. And then he is uh, probably invited as a guest speaker to this church at Capernaum. There was typically some kind of ruler of a synagogue, and then traveling teachers would come in and exposit the scriptures. So uh, Jesus at least has enough favor to to be welcomed in uh, to preach on, on the Sabbath there. Verse 22 says, And they were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. In the Old Testament, uh, you know when a man came preaching, he announces, uh, the word of the Lord came to me saying thus and such. Or he'll say his, his prophetic announcement and then say, thus saith the Lord. But what does Jesus do when he preaches? He just says, truly, truly, I say to you. This is radically new in the history of the world, and there's a reason why it says in John's gospel that no one ever spoke like this man, right? No, you read the gospels, and you just know this is not Isaiah, okay? This is not Moses. This is not even an apostle. This is a man who can just say, truly, truly, I say to you, and then whatever he says, God says, right? This is the kind of authority that is manifest in his preaching. Jesus, of course, is the very word of the Lord. He is what proceeds from the mind and mouth of the Father and what Jesus says, God says. Jesus is the authority to which all the prophets appealed to. And here he is, God in the flesh, sitting in a synagogue in Galilee, teaching the common people of Capernaum. There is something strange and beautiful about the ways of God. If you've walked with the Lord long enough, you know this, right? There's something strange and beautiful about the ways of God. He veils infinite and eternal glory in fragile jars of clay. He loves to do this. He loves to place precious jewels into the hands, the coarse hands of fishermen. And he makes them stewards of the mysteries of the kingdom. That is what Jesus begins to do and teach. And Mark says they were astonished at his doctrine, as they should be. Verses 23 and 24 say, And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. We've already seen in this gospel Jesus battle Satan in the wilderness. And you might think that, hey, now that we're not in the wilderness anymore, now that we're in church, we're in a safe place, right? This is a sanctuary, right? Well, you should have learned from Genesis 3 that uh, when, when you're in a garden sanctuary, uh, you should look for the serpent, right? There's always, there's always a serpent lurking about. Yes, these synagogues are supposed to be places of holiness, places of worship that are safe from the devil. But as we will see in this gospel and the rest of the New Testament, uh, many of these synagogues have gone apostate. They might claim to be worshiping Jehovah, but they actually worship idols. And by worshiping idols, they have become what Revelation 2 calls synagogues of Satan. So yes, the church is a place of holiness. It is where the holy people, the saints, gather, which is what also makes it a target for demonic activity. And when there is false teaching, when there is immorality amongst 
God's people, you can be sure that impurity and unclean spirits are nigh. Immorality opens people up to demonic influence, and in this case, demonic possession. Uh, In the Old Testament, there is a direct link between unclean spirits and false prophecy. Uh, We see this in 1 Kings 22, uh, a spiritual being offers to be a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's prophets. Um, It says in Zechariah 13.2, speaking of the days of the Messiah, it says, And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. So that's what Zechariah prophesied, and that's what we're seeing happening here. So Jesus comes into this church, this synagogue, and he teaches true doctrine, pure gospel. And the response is for a man with an unclean spirit to feel threatened. The truth, as you know, provokes falsehood to reveal itself. Notice what the unclean spirit says to Jesus. It says, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? Um, Later, there will be a a legion of demons that will uh, possess one man. But in this case, it's just one, right? So he says, uh, uh, there's just one unclean spirit, but he's speaking in the first person plural. And uh, there's a few different ways to take this, but I think probably the most likely way of understanding this is that this unclean spirit is part of a larger network of demons, a network that has congregated in this region and has infiltrated the synagogues. And this, uh, uh, this really is spiritual warfare 101. Satan attacks the places of power and influence in a culture, right? The, The devil... Uh, The enemy of Christ targets kings and governments, churches and schools, places with influence. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, there are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. So, you know, think like C.S. Lewis for a moment in the screw tape letters and think, if, if I was the devil, how would I corrupt the people of God? Uh, I would probably just set up shop as a pastor in a church, okay? This is like the, you know, if we can think of that, of course, uh, the enemy can think of that. And that's what Jesus is encountering in the first century. And as we will see, the entire religious establishment is uh, inherently demonic, okay? Uh, There's a reason why the temple is going to be uh, destroyed. So where are you going to find unclean spirits and demons in this world? Well, you you will find them in the halls of government. You'll find them in state capitol buildings. You'll find them in Olympia, in Washington, D.C., in major network studios, in boardrooms, in the C-suites of large businesses. Wherever power and influence congregate, the forces of darkness try to infiltrate. And um, if you are an unbeliever, if you are unbaptized, you are especially vulnerable to demonic influence. There is uh, no guardian angel watching over you if you are an unbeliever. But where there are true Christians, where there are sons and children of the light, uh, Jesus says in Matthew 18.10, For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So, 
what this is saying is every, every elect saint has at least one angel assigned to them that is always beholding, that always has the beatific vision, you know, is beholding the Father who is in heaven. Uh, we see this also in, in Psalm 91. Uh, For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. It says in Hebrews 1.14 that angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. So, I mean, it's a really big deal when a child is baptized. When a saint renounces, as we, we heard Hazel and Ann do, when they renounce the devil and his works. This is a kind of exorcism that happens, and the Holy Spirit comes and inheres the person, and the unclean spirit is cast away. When we come under the protection of Jesus, he makes unclean spirits to tremble at his word. Amen. The unclean spirit here says, I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. This is going to be one of the, the major ironies of Mark's gospel. Mark has a lot of irony in it. We'll, we'll see this. Is that uh, the people who are supposed to know who Jesus is uh, don't know. They, they don't understand. And then you have uh, the enemies of God. Uh, they, they know his identity. And the disciples especially will see uh, Mark paints the disciples uh, in the dimmest light compared to any of the other gospels. So we'll see the apostles are going to look very stupid in this gospel. They'll look like you and me, right? Um, uh, and this is one of those cases where here the demons are more in the truth about who Jesus is than the rest of the people. Uh, so verse 25 says, And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. Uh, you might wonder in Mark's gospel why Jesus tells the demons to be silent. Why does he try to hide and conceal his identity? Uh, there's a few answers to this, uh, but for one, it would be unfitting for the truth to be proclaimed by demons. For as you know, um, as soon as demons are believed, they mingle falsehood with truth. This was uh, Satan in the garden, right? Hath, hath God really, really, has he really said that? Uh, moreover, another reason is that Jesus did not want or need the witness of demons to confirm his identity. The preaching of the gospel, the revelation of who Jesus is, is an honor and role that he reserves for himself and his disciples. You know, God could have had perfect angelic creatures come and be pastors of all the churches, right? But for some reason, he wanted to choose uh, sinful, fallible human beings to do it. Because God is strange and God is wise. And he loves, uh, he loves to turn the wisdom of this world inside out. So he sends uh, fools uh, like myself to say words and bring about his great salvation. So Jesus rebukes this unclean spirit. And he commands him to come out of the man. And we see in verses 26 to 28 it says, And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region about Galilee. Now, if you have been a Christian or around the Bible, you kind of just already know Jesus casts out demons. It's kind of obvious. But... Uh, in the history of the world, this is a new thing, okay? What we take for granted was radically new in the first century. 
um, up to this point in history, there was really only like two, three people who were ever known to cast out demons. Uh, there's um, Jewish myths about Solomon. He gets this ring from the archangel Michael, and he, he has this power to bind demons or something. So there, there's mythologies that grow up, right? They're myths. Uh, but in terms of just the Old Testament scriptures, there's really only one exorcist in the Bible. And who is that? David. Yeah, David is really the only one we ever see actually with the authority, with the power somehow to cast out a demon. So if you had a demon, uh, you were kind of stuck, right? You were stuck until either it chose to leave or, uh, right? This, it's this kind of terminal spiritual illness. So David is the lone exorcist of the Old Testament. He would play the harp and the evil spirit would depart from King Saul. And so for Jesus to come and cast out demons with just a word is a sign of at least two things. First, that Jesus is the promised son of David. He is the messianic king. If David could cast out demons, then of course the Messiah who comes in his lineage will be able to as well. But second, and what Mark I think is trying to do here is tell us that if Jesus is David, the more powerful exorcist, uh, then who is King Saul in this scenario? Who is afflicted by demonic powers? Well, throughout the gospel, it's the synagogues. It's the temple. It's the religious establishment. Who is going to try to kill Jesus with great frequency? The synagogues. What will Jesus warn his disciples about when they go preaching the gospel? He's not going to talk about that sketchy gas station. He's going to say, beware of the synagogues. He says in Mark 13, 9, But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues ye shall be beaten. Right? So if you're an apostle, if you're a disciple, and you're sent on a preaching ministry, when you get to the, the front doors of the church, you should know, I'm about to go get beat up inside of the synagogue. Right? This is what Jesus is telling them. So by uh, portraying Jesus as David the exorcist, Mark shows us the demonic influence that has a stronghold in the promised land. The synagogues have become a King Saul, and like King Saul, they will persecute and try to kill God's anointed one. Now, uh, we, we need to remember here what exactly a synagogue is. A synagogue is kind of a, a satellite campus for the temple. It's a little miniature house of worship, and uh, you think, who is supposed to live in the, the synagogue? Who's supposed to live in that house? Who's supposed to live in the temple? God. Yeah. A synagogue, a temple, is, is God's house. So when Jesus enters a synagogue, um, he's walking into a house with his you know, last name on, on the front door. This is, this is his uh, earthly address. This is God's house. And yet when God himself walks into the door of his you know, earthly home, what does he find? Right? Who, is, who is sitting on the couch with their feet up on the coffee table acting like they own the place? Right? It's, it's unclean spirits. It's demonic uh, religious leaders. Jesus comes home, <laughs> he's, he's been away, he comes home, he walks in the house, and, and unclean spirits have taken up residence there. He finds dead hearts, he finds unbelief, and as we will see in the future, uh, they are going to kick him out of his own house and crucify him. 
This is the homecoming that the human race gives to God. When the Creator visits His creation, when God visits the house that was built for His name, we don't recognize Him when He comes. So you can think about, uh, you know, you went off on vacation, you asked, you know, your cousins or your nephews or someone to house sit, you come back, and they've moved in, right? You know, this is our house now. You, we, thought, we thought you weren't going to come back. This is basically the parable Jesus is going uh, to tell them. And yet, you think of how you would feel coming home and seeing your house in disarray, someone there who uh, does not belong there, you would probably be pretty angry. And Jesus is going to do this at the temple. He's going to cleanse the temple. But notice his patience here. Notice the restraint and the mercy of God when he enters this house that should belong to him. He is, of course, angered by unbelief and the wickedness he finds, but he cleans it. He cleans his own house. He exercises the unclean spirits and sends them packing. As Jesus says in Luke 9.56, the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. That is what Jesus, the exorcist, comes to do. So after this exorcism, naturally his fame spreads abroad. This is something like a man being born blind who can now see. This is a new thing in the history of the world. And we see in verses 29 to 34, he enters straight away into a different house. Verses 29 to 30 say, And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew, with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and anon they tell him of her. Uh, From this, we can gather that the Apostle Peter was a married man. The Apostle Peter was a married man. And whatever the size of their house, their living situation was such that Simon could live there with his wife, his mother-in-law, and his brother Andrew. So this is a a very close-knit family. And uh, there's actually, when you read uh, some of the commentaries on this, there's actually been excavation of this region of Galilee, and they're, they're pretty confident that they have found this synagogue that, that they're talking about, because uh, there there's a synagogue that was built on top of it, and a house nearby that, looks, that fits kind of this bill, because this will eventually become uh, a place where the whole city is going to gather, so uh, just for what it's worth. Yet, um, there is a sign of death in this house. Peter's mother-in-law is laying sick with a fever. We're not told her exact condition, only that she is uh, sick and burning. Uh, Verse 31 says, And Jesus came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she ministered unto them. So Jesus comes to this uh, middle-aged woman lying in the heat of fever, and he doesn't even say anything. He says, says nothing. He just takes her by the hand and lifts her up. The language Mark uses here to describe Jesus' healing is the language of resurrection. He raised her up. This is the power of God, the healing waters from the temple flowing into Peter's house. When you read the covenant blessings and curses of Deuteronomy 28 or Leviticus 26, God is very, very clear that if a nation keeps covenant with him, then they will be healthy. They won't be sick. But when a nation disobeys God, he's also very, very, very clear that you're going to be plagued. 
It says in Deuteronomy 28:22, "The Lord shall smite thee with a consumption and with a fever and with an inflammation and with an extreme burning." And he goes on and on and on and lists all these other plagues and diseases that you will have. In other words, of the fact that this woman is burning with fever is a is a sign, another sign that the nation has broken covenant with God. The nation has broken covenant with God and is therefore under the curse. Jesus comes, he finds there's demons in the temple, there's demons in the house, and there's sickness in amongst the common people. This is the state of the world when Jesus arrives. Um, At the very least, this should cause us to look around at the state of our own nation that has been visited with all kinds of viruses, cancers, disease, plagues of our own. And while we might be individually faithful, individually righteous, as citizens of an apostate nation, we all suffer the consequences of national idolatry, right? We all suffer the consequences of living in a land where our neighbor can actually legally murder their baby in the womb, right? We we all are guilty of that in some respect. We are guilty that our neighbor can you know, have their child uh, mutilated or have their private parts surgically removed. And that is, that is a protected thing now. So every time you get sick, every time someone in your family gets sick, it should remind you that our land is under judgment. God is displeased. And if we do not repent as a nation, not just you as an individual, as a nation, then suffering will only increase. COVID was a mercy compared to what we deserve. And yet still, many, many people have not learned the lesson. Instead, they have hardened their hearts against the Lord. So the fact that Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law should both sober us and give us hope. Yes, we are under judgment, but God still has the power to heal, and he does so all the time. He delights to mitigate and remove the curse from those that call out to him. That is why we pray when we get sick, because Jesus is our healer. Finally, our text ends with the sun setting on the Sabbath, verses 32 to 34. It says, And at evening when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased, and them that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases, and cast out many devils, and suffered not the devils to speak, because they knew him. So Jesus casts out you know, one demon in the synagogue. He heals one woman from her fever. And now Jesus heals the entire city. It turns out there are many devils that need to be cast out, and many that were sick with diverse diseases. And here in Capernaum, at the beginning of Christ's ministry, we see a visible manifestation of Romans 5.20, which says, But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are still many wicked and unclean spirits in our world. There's a false prophet on every TV screen. There are still demonic forces that oppress the vulnerable and persecute the righteous. But where sin and evil abound, the grace of God can abound much more. And how does that happen? By the preaching of the word. 
by the announcement of the kingdom of God and by us calling the world, our neighbor, ourselves to repentance and faith in Jesus. Our nation may be demon-possessed, but Jesus is an able exorcist. Our nation may be lying sick with burning fever, but Jesus can raise her to life and make her serve him again. There is nothing that God cannot resurrect. And if we will turn to him, if we will seek him earnestly, he promises that he will be found. So if you are in need of deliverance, if you are in need of healing, of cleansing from whatever, come to Jesus. Cast yourself upon his mercy, and he will by no means cast you out. He delights to make his home with you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we are convicted by your word. We know that if you were to come into our home, uh, we would be nervous. We might be embarrassed with what you would find there. And God, you see uh, better than we do the wickedness in our nation, where there is uh, spiritual oppression and bondage, whether uh, the drugs, the homeless, uh, the pornography, what happens in public schools, what happens in hospitals in these places. God, you see it all. It it will all uh, be laid bare in the day of judgment. And God, I ask that you who have the ability to turn the heart of the king wherever you will, that you would turn the heart of our nation, the heart of our leaders, the heart of our rulers, the heart of pastors and other churches, and bring true reformation, bring true repentance and true revival to this land. We pray this, we seek it in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. In Romans fourteen seventeen, it says, For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Here at this table, here in the house of God, the kingdom of heaven is offered unto us. The kingdom is not the mere eating of bread and the mere drinking of wine, but bread and wine are what Jesus gives his disciples as a sign and seal of the gospel. So as we eat and as we drink, do so in faith, faith in the gospel, because when you do, Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost is given unto you. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Receive now the benediction. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end, and amen. Amen.